Human mind is the most complex object in the known universe. I say that, but these large language models are getting so complex and we're starting not to understand their behavior. I think that if you understand the mind in all of that depth and you have the computational capacity, you could make artificial brains that are on the level of complexity of the human mind. So who are you? Uh, I'm a professor um, at the University of Colorado. I'm also an author. Um, I wrote a book in 2017 called The Knowledge Illusion. Um, by training, I'm a cognitive scientist. So I study how people think and make decisions. Okay. I found you through your TED Talk, your famous TED Talk. <laughs> so uh, I want you to start telling me about the some stuff that we you found fascinating about the, how people think that we don't normally know. Yeah, so one of the major themes of my work, you know, I just said my name of my book is The Knowledge Illusion. Uh, one of the major themes of my work that I've been interested in for a while is um, why we have such strong opinions about things that we don't understand very well. That was sort of a starting point for um, a lot of my research. Um, and um, uh, what I came to realize is that um, across a huge variety of our experience in the world, we tend to think that we understand things a lot more deeply than we do. And that sort of gives us the feeling that we can um, maintain strong opinions about things. And we often don't realize that we don't know as much as, that, as we think. Um, and so a lot of the time when we have really strong opinions about things, it can be based on this very kind of rickety um, foundation of not really understanding the issue in depth. Can, can you give me an example of a, one thing that we usually think that we don't know, but we have no idea about how? Yeah, I, I often love to uh, use the example of a toilet. Um, so um, some of the or original work on this um, was done in the 1990s by a guy named Frank Kyle, who's a psychologist at Yale. And he uh, ran uh, studies basically trying to understand what people thought they knew about common, like uh, common household everyday objects. So you can imagine things like um, zippers or ballpoint pens or uh, whatever it is, simple objects, simple machines that we interact with in all the time in our day-to-day -day life. Um, and um, I love the example of a toilet. So um, we can sort of talk about that for a second. So in this experiment, the first thing I'm going to do uh, is I'm going to ask you to just think about how well you understand something. So for instance, the toilet. How well do you feel like you understand how a toilet works? And I don't want you to think too hard about it. I want you to just sort of make that initial impression. Tell me about your initial impression. And, eight um, out of 10? Eight out of 10, perfect, yeah. So, you you know, that you're like most people. You're kind of nodding and uh, you're, you're like, yeah, I kind of know how a toilet works. Um, but in the next phase of the experiment, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to explain to me exactly how it works in detail. So walk me through the mechanism of exactly how it works. So um, do you want to actually try to do that? Yes. So okay. it, you click the water that is above because of gravity or something. Go <laughs> flows when you tap when you tap it. Uh, it goes and uh, replace the water that is dirty. And go the water that is dirty moves down. Okay. Through, through the pipe, but I just understood that 
I don't know a lot of things about toilets. <laughs> okay, so you did a perfect demonstration of exactly what happens in the experiment, is that people say, oh yeah, I know how that works. They try to explain and they say gravity or something, right? Like, which is, uh, and if you, want to do, if you want a very concise explanation, read the first chapter of my book, which we actually give this example and then we say, okay, here's how it actually works. I'm no plumbing expert, so I'm not going to try to explain it and make a fool of myself. Um, but that's exactly the phenomenon that we're talking about. In general, um, we take in the world at a very coarse level of detail. We actually don't know how the world works very well at all. Um, we have very shallow understanding of most things. Um, and um, it's true of of so much of uh, of our experience in the world, you know. Um, and uh, there's really good reasons why that is. And, and that's sort of the starting point for this kind of journey of understanding a lot about the way that the mind works, what the mind evolved to do, why we argue about complex political issues, why people believe the earth is flat. I mean, there's so many different directions that you can take this stuff. And that's why it's kind of a really exciting area for me, for my, uh, for why I've gotten so fascinated with it, um, you know, and why we, we wrote a whole book about it. So is it, evolutionary the reason that we think we know and and we don't know um we believe yes that there is um very important evolutionary aspects to um the reason that we have this illusion um i can i can give you kind of a, a sketch out sort of the argument um in a couple minutes which won't really do justice to sort of the nuances but but let me try so um, I'm just going to start by making the assertion that the world is just way too complex for any one individual to master uh, really um, detailed information about almost anything. Um, look around the room right now. Think about all of the objects in the room that you're sitting in right now and think about all of the complexity involved in making them work, sourcing the materials, all of this kind of stuff. And this is just the nature of, of, of the world. It's incredibly complex. Um, and so if, if our minds were built to store huge amounts of detailed information about the world, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. There's just too much to know. And we're too often in novel environments where we've never experienced them before. So it's not like you can just store everything. So instead, what we um, are really built for is actually throwing away a lot of the details and trying to generalize and absorb deep principles about the way things work in a way that allows us to um, act adaptively in novel situations. So that's sort of the first part of the story. We're not built to store a lot of detailed information. In fact, our minds are really built for throwing away a lot of details and trying to extract the... the um, should try to extract the the the... Uh, the principles that are invariant across situations and across time. Um, the second part of the story is the subtitle of the book, which is, um, it's the knowledge illusion, why we never think alone. And oh, um, interesting. the idea is that what's really special about human beings is not our capacity for individual thinking. In fact, it's our capacity to form into communities um, where knowledge is stored in the community, but not in individuals, but sort of spread across the community. And so we have specialization where each person maintains some special knowledge that they're the kind of the master of, the expert of. And we form into these communities 
and we have um, built-in cognitive capacities for collaboration, cognitive collaboration, something that no other animals have. That's what really is amazing about human beings. I mean, the fact that you and I can sit here and just have this conversation, kind of build on what the other one is saying and create something new, that's sort of where all the magic happens in human society. And if you think about anything we do in modern human society, um, it takes this massive distribution of, ex of effort where no one individual understands 1% of it, but the community sort of understands. Um, and uh, that's really what makes human beings special. Um, so all of that leads up to the idea of, okay, we don't know that much about the world as individuals because it's really we're really built for storing knowledge across our communities. That's the first step. The second step is, okay, so why do we feel like we understand things when we joke? Well, what we believe is that it's by virtue of participating in this community where the knowledge exists in the community, just by virtue of participating, we get the feeling that we ourselves understand because we're sort of used to sharing knowledge. So I don't necessarily have to know something if I know I can just look it up or I can ask somebody who knows. So we have this very fluid sense in which we share knowledge across our communities. And just by virtue of doing that, um, we get the feeling that we ourselves understand when we don't. So a good example of this would be, you know, everybody in your community is saying, you know, such and such politician is terrible because they have some position on some issue. And you start nodding along and you're like, oh yeah, they really are terrible. Um, and by virtue of that kind of nodding along process, um, and you, you get you start to feel like, oh, I know what everyone's talking about. I really understand this issue in depth. Just by participating in that community, there's kind of this, this um, contagious sense of understanding, we call it. Um, and so uh, that's where we think that the illusion comes from. It's because it's so natural for us to share knowledge um, not just what's inside our head, we often fail to recognize where that knowledge resides. So it's a bit of a, a long story, but but that's kind of the, the story that we that we we believe is 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 the correct one. So basically, you are saying that knowledge. Uh, uh, how how do we use knowledge? How do we store knowledge? How do we transfer knowledge? Uh, it's kind of uh, what made us uh, evolve so much faster than the an other animals. Absolutely, yeah. So that's, um, we, have, we have a chapter in the book on evolutionary psychology, and there's this idea um, from evolutionary psychology called the social brain hypothesis. So there's this big uh, mystery in the, um, in, the, uh, in the anthropology literature, which is the question of why did modern humans evolve so quickly? And basically, if you look at anatomically modern humans, their brains are like way, way bigger um, than our hominid ancestors. That happened over a evolutionarily a very short time. So there's been this um, very big puzzle in that literature to try to understand what was it that created that very rapid development that led to modern humans. And there's this idea called the social brain hypothesis, which is that it really had to do with um, with uh, Maintain it with, with the with with the necessity of being able to maintain social connections in groups and the cognitive capacities required for that. And then once you get into these groups, it kind of builds on itself because groups 
where you have distributed cognition are able to do really amazing things that individuals couldn't do. So they can develop culture, they can create technology, they can transmit information across generations. All of this kind of stuff kind of is a, um, a ratchet, a ratcheting sort of effect where um, once you have that ability to kind of share knowledge across a, gr a group, maintain social connections, all that kind of stuff, you get this kind of feedback loop where you can get smarter and smarter, both as in individ individuals and as a group. So that's that's the very kind of um, maybe, you know, 30-second version of this idea of the social brain hypothesis. But it's one of the leading ideas about why um, intelligence evolved so rapidly in that in that period. A lot of people say uh, say it. Uh, I heard uh, again that is our ability to uh, cooperate in large numbers that made us uh, uh, different than the other animals. But this is slightly different, a bit more advanced, and maybe a cooler uh, explanation to this. Or this is the same thing you essentially say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just numbers is not sufficient for intelligence. Uh, because a lot of animals hang out in large groups, but they don't hang out in large groups where they have such complex interactions and distribution of knowledge across the group. You do have some examples of this, like complexity emerging from groups with specialized skills. So we, I, I like to talk about bees, for instance. And if you look at a beehive, a beehive um, accomplishes a lot of really complex um tasks. So the bee the, the year's collection of of food and nutrients, there's introduction of genetic diversity, there's protection of the hive. There's all this kind of stuff that happens in a beehive. And but it's not because anyone's in charge. It's because you have specialization of skills um that's been that's evolved. And then you get really kind of complex behavior at the level of the group. Um human beings are different because there is that individual cognition plus an ability to engage in really complex behavior across the group. Um, so you do have like, you know, you do have examples of coordinated coordinated behavior among animals. Like for instance, there's coordinated hunting in certain types of animals. You have some kinds of communication in animal groups, but human beings take that to a whole different level um, in terms of our ability to collaborate and really Um, there, there, there's great work by, uh, by a guy named Mike Tomasello, who um, studies comparative psychology. So comparing what, what, say, young children do compared to other kinds of animals, like um, uh, uh, different kinds of apes and things. Um, and uh, he has really kind of locked in on certain kinds of collaborative abilities that human beings have that other uh, animals don't have. So for instance, as an example... Um, there's this idea called theory of mind, which is um, I have to represent that somebody else has a mind in order to know, say, if I want to collaborate with you in some way, I have to think about your mental states. Like, what is it that you want? What do you need? What do you desire um, in order for us to collaborate? That actually takes a lot of cognition because I have to actually represent you as having a mind and then make guesses about what's going on inside your mind. I can't just... Um, sort of like read you the way I would, um, you know, uh, like, you know, some just purely physical system. So there, there's a, a good argument that in order to engage in the kind of collaboration that people engage in, you need to have certain kinds of very special cognition that other kind of animals don't have. You know, if you're, if you're hunting in a pack, 
it might be that is just, um, you know, if I'm, I'm a, say a, a pack of fish looking for food, I might be able to do something simple, like just react to certain kinds of movements of, of the individual next to me, and you can get quite complex behavior. But what people do is much more in depth than that. You know, it, it has to do with things like representing other people as thinking agents and so on. Okay, so from now on, uh, if uh, someone asks us how, why humans uh, took over the world in comparison to other animals, you say simply is because our ability to store and transmit information in uh, in in in, a, in store and transmit information is that correct or no um across a group i would say yeah the ability well i would say it's two it's sort of like two parts one is the ability to have that specialization where knowledge can be stored across an arbitrarily large group of people um and also stored in our technology and our devices and all that kind of stuff. All of that sort of superpowers the ability of what human beings can do. And then it's the ability to collaborate in a way that allows us to pursue arbitrarily complex goals. Like if you think about, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, it would take hundreds of years to build a cathedral. And, you know, you would have multiple designers that would be involved in that process over the course of the project, you'd have workers, you have so much distribution. There's not one person who's sort of in charge of everything, right? And that same kind of ability, that kind of, that that massively distributed effort is responsible for all of the amazing technology that we have in the world. Um, You know, nowadays, you know, someone might conceive a physics experiment and not even have the technology to do it for 50 or 100 years. And uh, that's like this incredibly distributed, complicated task that eventually comes to fruition over you know generations. Like doing something like that is is really incredible. Um, but that's where a lot of our technology comes from. It has to do with this 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 incredible ability to collaborate in that way. So you say about the illusion of knowledge, but. You are explaining slowly, slowly that actually it's not an illusion. You actually know you have in your disposal Google to search the information and understand it immediately. Yeah. So maybe is that, what do you think about this? The illusion is that we feel like we ourselves know the information. Not that, and I think that's right. It's like a lot of the time that information is accessible. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of my, um, uh, former colleagues who I work, have worked with quite a bit. Um, he's a guy named Adrian Ward. He uh, wrote a paper about how searching the internet inflates our sense of understanding. Um, because basically we attribute, um, the knowledge to ourselves instead of to, so like, for instance, if I ask you a trivia question and, um, then I allow you to search it on the internet, you search it. And then you look it up and then you might go, oh yeah, I knew that. I knew that one, right? So like searching the internet makes you feel like you knew it because you have sort of access to it. But in his paper, what he does is he actually asks people to bet on how well they're going to do on another test without access to the internet. And people are highly um, overconfident because they're feeling that they themselves understand becomes inflated just by virtue of having access to the internet. So there is an illusion there. Um, but 
You're right. The illusion, we believe, stems from the fact that a lot of the times that information is accessible. So uh, how do you study this stuff? Like, do you put people's brain activity? You use brain scans while you ask them questions. Do you ask surveys? Do you... How, yeah. how do you study all these things? I, I, I personally don't do any, um, what you're describing is called fMRI, uh, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, I don't do any work like that. Um, my, I'm really a psychologist, cognitive scientist, and I run experiments um, and surveys. So basically ask people questions or ask people to do certain kinds of behaviors and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Can you give me some examples? Like, how do you do one recent survey that you did, and like uh, how how you went about it? Uh, sure. Yeah. So we've been doing some research uh, in collaboration, primarily with one of my former students, a guy by the name of Nick Light, who's um, uh, at the University of Oregon. Um, we've been doing research on trying to understand why people have counter consensus views on science. So why is it that people don't like genetically modified foods? Why is it that they um, don't like vaccination? Why is it that they deny climate change? That kind of stuff. Um, and in that work, what we do is we look at um, we look at three things. One is how strong are their counter consensus views? The second one is how much do they actually know about the issues? So objective knowledge. And the third would be their subjective knowledge. How much do they feel that they know? The um, main finding from that research, and maybe you could guess based on what I've said so far uh, in our conversation, is that um, the most, the strongest opinions are among the people who have the biggest gaps between how much they think they know and how much they actually know. Um, and uh, so in, in a study in that stream of research, the kind of thing we would do would be to simply ask people their positions on certain issues. We would ask them to answer a bunch of questions about the issue and we would figure out how much they actually know. And then we would ask them uh, about their uh, subject of knowledge or how well do they feel like they understand the issues. So that would be a simple example. We could do that either in person or online, um, but that would be the kind of thing we would do. Now, um, your audience may or may not be familiar with the distinction between an experiment and a survey. Um, that would be more of a survey, a correlational design, we sometimes call it. Um, and in an experiment, which is kind of more commonly the sort of thing I do, um, you would have different conditions in your experiment where both groups, if you, have, you might have multiple groups, they would see exactly the same thing, but sort of one thing would be varied across groups. And then you would see if the behavior was different in the two groups. And then you could sort of pinpoint that whatever it is that differs between the two groups is... Um, is responsible for any differences in behavior. That's an experiment. So that's that's a, you know commonly the kind of thing I would I would do. Um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of times, for example, when you find that people have a big gap to what uh, they think they know and what they know, is this, can you predict other stuff with that? For example, how much money they have, how successful they are in life. Is this a, a big driving factor to be aware of what you know in life? Uh, that's a great that's a great question. So um, one thing that you have to do is um, I'm sure your audience is familiar with um, the mantra that correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah, I'm sure that you've probably heard that term before, right? 
Have you heard that before? Nope. Oh, you haven't heard that. Okay. Correlation does not equal causation. Um, so A and B, two variables can be associated with each other, but that doesn't necessarily mean that A causes B. So for instance, in your example, you say, um, uh, are people who experience more of an illusion wealthier? Or I'm sorry, less of an illusion wealthier. One particular interpretation of that would be that you know, having the illusion is bad and you make less money or whatever. But there's other possible interpretations for that. It could be reverse causality. Maybe wealthy people are less prone to the illusion for whatever reason. Another possible explanation would be what's called third variable causation or spurious correlation, where those two things, like having the illusion and having a lot of money, are correlated with each other, but it's by virtue of a third variable that's actually responsible for both. So maybe, I don't know, general intelligence predicts both of these things. So um, there's two questions you could ask. One would be, does having the illusion causally lead to certain kinds of things? And um, I don't know the answer to that because that would be a very hard study to run. And I don't think anyone's actually done those kinds of studies. Um, another thing would be, um, are there correlates that are potentially maybe interesting? So things that correlate with um, having more of the illusion or not. And there are some things. So um, age, for instance, uh, gender. Um, one that I find interesting is what we call a, 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 an idea called cognitive reflection. And this is a test, which is basically, um, the, this is a work originally by a guy named Shane Frederick, who, who created this um, idea called cognitive reflection, which is an individual difference in psychology, um, which um, predicts how susceptible you are to kind of trick questions. So what he has was he created this series of, um, of uh, sort of trick questions. And um, the, uh, the first answer that pops into your head is wrong. And it's pretty easy if you stop yourself and you think a little more deeply to get the right answer. But most people just give the wrong answer that pops right into their head. And so they're less reflective. And less reflective people are more susceptible to the illusion. So I think that that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. But in terms of... so, Go ahead. So basically, you can find correlations between uh, other fields uh, in, of, or you can predict stuff with their life but like you are saying usually it's you need to put other factors in as well to understand better if they are rich that they answer this question if they are if they have a family or how old they are you can look for you can find correlations between variable different variables that you measure and how susceptible people are to the illusion. What that data doesn't give you is the causality, what causes what. That would require a lot more in-depth kind of analysis or other kinds of study designs uh, to try to figure yes, out what causes what. You know, like no. having money is correlated with a lot of things. It's correlated with socioeconomic status. It's correlated with um, educational attainment. It's correlated with uh, with... Um, what country you live in, um, all kinds of different stuff, you know, general intelligence. Um, 
So if it correlates with having less of this illusion, that does that it's it would be pretty weak evidence to say that oh having the illusion is is bad for your wealth. You know what I mean? That would be kind of overinterpreting. Now that you've seen all this stuff, I'm thinking about uh, artificial intelligence and large language models that uh, yeah. uh, they are able to find. Sure. Correl- so, for example, on YouTube, uh, YouTube gives you a video that uh, you probably would like to watch, like all the recommendations and stuff, and the how it interpret that you like it like who knows maybe it's because you charge your phone that uh, that na- time per night every night and correlate with the other people that they charge their phones or that at the yeah. same time and like so uh, we yes yeah, so you how do you feel about the future of all this stuff and the future in your field uh, of understanding a, a lot of things with the artificial intelligence now yeah, I, mean, I, I do think it's important to um, make a distinction between prediction and explanation. So um, if you have a ton of data, like your YouTube, and you have tons of data um, about people, um, you can probably make incredibly precise predictions about their future likes or behaviors and so on. That doesn't necessarily mean you can understand why. Um, sometimes... You just have tons of data you can kind of throw out the problem. You can make really fine-grained predictions, really precise predictions. Um, in my world, often what we're trying to think through is actually trying to have simpler models that gives us some insight into what are the cognitive processes are actually going on, what's what's actually driving the behavior. Those are kind of different goals. Um, and so um, artificial intelligence appears to be really incredibly good especially with the amount of data that's available for making these kind of incredible, incredibly precise predictions. Um, I think, you know, eventually we are going to get to the point where artificial intelligence gets so smart that it is really good at that understanding piece, you know, trying to come up with more explanatory models of things. Um, And, you know, it is starting to scratch the surface of that. That is still sort of the domain of people. um, But, the uh, pace at which artificial intelligence is uh, getting better and improving um, is really kind of amazing. So I'm uh, I'm incredibly uh, excited of uh, to see what the future holds, you know, for that kind of stuff, for sure. So, so why the why is important to understand? Like you're saying uh, that they can predict, but they don't know a hundred percent why. Uh, why? Why one thing is yeah, doing what it's yeah. doing? So wh- why? Why is important? Okay, so why is important for two reasons. One is I'm a cognitive scientist, and this is my job to understand, you know, and build models of like how the mind works. And so inherently, I think it we we want to understand the mind. Um, the other side of it would be the more you understand something, the better model you can actually build that kind of generalizes to new situations. Um, so if you want to predict how someone's going to behave in a very different situation, the data that you're working with, like, you know, if you're, if you, if you take that person off of YouTube and you're no longer trying to just predict what kind of video they're going to like, uh, later, but you're going to try to predict something very different, um, you need to have generalization. So there it's often helpful to understand in a deeper sense, kind of what's driving behavior. 
Um, you might not have the same variables available. Um, you might be trying to predict something different. So having a kind of in-depth understanding of that, I think is going to allow you to make models that kind of generalize outside of the domain in which you're doing what you're doing. A lot of um, uh, nowadays, like prediction tasks on the internet are pretty specialized because if I'm Netflix, you know, I basically just want to know what is, what are, what should I recommend to people? What are they going to like? Um, how can I increase engagement? Same thing on YouTube or Twitter or any other platform, you know? But if, uh, you know, I ask a different question, like, um, how, how do you, how do you get someone to change their mind about, uh, about a political candidate or something like that? Or, uh, how do you get them to, um, be interested in a very novel product that's like nothing they've ever seen before. Those kinds of questions, they're a little trickier because it's not clear exactly what is the, the data that you would need to kind of put into your model to try to figure that out. I'm rambling a so, little bit, but I'm sort of just speaking no, extemporaneously off no, the top No, no, it's very, yeah. very, very, very interesting. Uh, I have a question about... So how complex you think you think the mind is very 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 complex or simple the human mind yes human mind is the most complex object in the known universe so i would say complicated <laughs> i mean you know i say that but these lang large language models are getting so complex in and of themselves um like you have neural networks that have uh, they're not on the order of of like a brain, but they are huge and very complex. And we're starting not to understand their behavior, uh, which is pretty amazing. But but yeah, the human mind is the most complex object we know of in the universe. And do you think there is a way to how how we should go about and tackle this problem to understand the mind? Like, uh... well, we have this field. It's called yeah, my field where I got my PhD is called cognitive science. And it's probably the most complicated field in all of the sciences because you have everything from philosophers and linguists down to psychologists, neuroscientists, computer scientists, mathematicians, physicists. Everybody is working on the problem of how to understand the mind. And basically, the answer is you can't just study it at one level of abstraction. You have to understand what is a particular single neuron doing? What are groups of neurons doing? How can you represent concepts in symbols. I mean, it, go, it just ranges. And then, you know, like how do groups of individuals work together and network analysis and all this kind of stuff. So you have to study this thing at so many different levels of analysis um, to really start to make headway. Um, so there's not like one thing that you need to do to understand the mind. I mean, it's just this incredibly complex thing. And, um, you know, all of these different areas are making progress and you see it. I mean, you would not have AI, the development of AI, everything that's happening right now that's kind of exploded above the surface, it's like um, it's like a um, iceberg. It's all based on incredible development of artificial intelligence, machine learning, all this kind of stuff that happened in the cognitive sciences over the last you know fifty to one hundred years. All of that stuff has been building to the point at which we've developed technology, which is really inspired by the mind, these neural networks. That's now just kind of exploded through the surface where people are like, holy cow, that kind of came out of nowhere. And it didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, yes, the development of it reached sort of a level of sophistication, which is like shocking. But, you know, people must must have noticed that, 
you know, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as um, sort of like say speech recognition. We didn't know how to solve that problem. And like, you know, now you just speak to any device and it like almost understands you perfectly. I mean, it's incredible. So you, you, we are seeing, have been seeing this for a long time, but people just didn't realize how profound it is until now. Um, but uh, yeah, so we don't still don't know the first thing about how the mind works in a, a deep way. I mean, there is so much that we don't know. We, there's so much more that we don't know about the mind than there is that we do know. Um, but the development of it is really exponential at this point. I mean, it's really amazing uh, how that accumulated knowledge is starting to uh, pay dividends. Okay, very, very interesting. So you're basically saying that uh, the way to tackle the problem of understanding the mind is by understanding individual neurons, then all neurons together, then the large behavior of the, so tackle all see that up from above, from inside, from outside, from all the angles to kind of make se sense of it. I think it's like, yeah, so it's um, diversity across levels of analysis and diversity across methodologies. So, um, you know, computer simulation, uh, fMRI, human experimentation, um, all of these different methodologies that have been developed across all of these different fields all work together to sort of solve a piece of it. And then they're all studying the brain at like different levels of analysis. I mean, at some point, you know, maybe in a hundred years or 500 years or whatever it is, we will be able to understand things at each of those levels and really connect all the levels. So you have a full understanding of this thing. Um, but really to have that full understanding, you have to understand at all of these different levels and with all these different methodologies, there's just so much to know. What, what happens if we understand the brain fully? Like, can we create other conscious beings? Can, like what, yeah. what happens? That's a really deep question. So I think that if you understand the mind in all of that depth and you have the um, computational capacity, you could make artificial brains that are on the level of complexity of the human mind. That does not answer the question of consciousness because consciousness is one thing that is completely mysterious still um, and is really in the realm of philosophy. There are some theories out there um, about consciousness and where it arises from and how it emerges. But the truth is that it's something that's incredibly hard to understand because it's very hard to tell if some other being has consciousness. How can you tell? Because consciousness is really this personal experience. It's this phenomenology of thought. And so to understand, I don't know, for instance, whether you're conscious, you could be just pretending. Um, and the only reason I think you're conscious is because you are kind of acting the way that I act and I know that I'm conscious. So consciousness is this incredibly hard thing, this very puzzling, mysterious thing. Um, so we don't know that if you actually build an artificial brain that has the level of complexity of a human brain of whether that would actually um, generate consciousness or not, um, because we have no idea what consciousness is, where it comes from, why we have it, and all, all those kinds of big philosophical questions. Um, yeah. So, so, but your sense is that this is a very, very important field 
because if we understand how the mind works, maybe we can store our minds and after a hundred years, maybe they, they create, uh, they recreate us with uh, our DNA yep. and our minds. Like you, you, you feel that this is probably one of the most important research that is being done now. I mean, that is an amazing mind. idea. Like theoretically what we have inside of our skulls is a computer. And if you could reconstruct that computer, why shouldn't it be able to generate the same behaviors and activities and um, memories and all the kind of stuff that we have in our minds? So theoretically, yeah, like, um, but, but you know, not, not everyone. But, but not consciousness. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know about consciousness. We don't know. That is, that is the big puzzle. Um, I think you ask most cognitive scientists, um, they don't believe, like most would not say that there's some magical spiritual energy beyond the generation of our thoughts from our mind. Most of them are kind of, um, I would say that they believe they're sort of the naturalistic explanations. They think that the mind is a computer of a, of a type. And if you reconstructed that computer in some different substrate, you would generate the same kind of thought. So I think most cognitive scientists would believe that, not not all. Um, some do believe in sort of a more of a, a spiritual aspect of human existence that couldn't be replicated in a computer. But if you do believe that, it opens up these incredible ideas of uh, that seem like science fiction, you know, for sure. Um, and uh, I think those kinds of ideas, I mean, they they um, they raise a lot of really thorny and challenging and complicated philosophical issues. Uh, that are that are mind really you know I'm a big sci-fi guy I love science fiction um, and there's a lot of great sci-fi that uh, is really connected with that idea of what happens once you can store a mind in a computer I mean it changes things dramatically you know um, it's actually you know there, there's ideas of well maybe physical existence ceases to be the way that advanced civilizations actually exist and they all become simulations and you know planets are basically dedicated just to being server farms for simulations where people can maintain their existence outside of the physical realm and uh or maybe people can transport themselves through time and i could go to sleep and wake up a million years from now and see what's up you know so like it just brings brings in all these incredible you know, not necessarily all good. Like some of these things might not be good, but they're very exciting and fun to think about for sure. I didn't understand the example that you gave about the the simulation. Like you're saying, basically, maybe we're living in a simulation, and that's the example. I wasn't saying we're living in a simulation. That's certainly possible. That's not. I, I don't think so. Like I personally don't believe that we live in a simulation, um, but it's certainly possible. You know. Um, and some people think that it's more likely than not. Um, what I was saying is that an advanced civilization that can really store a mind in a computer might decide that this physical realm that we live in is not as cool as like ah, living in a simulation. Interesting. And, yeah. Now I understand. So you're saying basically, if if we are able to store a mind to a computer, why not to live in the the in the cloud or something yeah and like be yeah. A, be able to travel and like uh 
space travel or time travel and do all sorts of things that we biological stupid human beings can't. Right. Yeah. If you could perfectly simulate experience, like um, what's the point aside from being nostalgia or whatever of actually living in this physical body that where we have pain and, you know, we don't always get what we want and all these other kinds of challenges. I mean, I'm not saying I want that for society. You know, I already get stressed out when my kids are on their iPads too much, you know. Um, but uh, it is certainly a possibility to think of because, I mean, you know, look at the way it is now. Like a lot of people want to spend a lot of their time just sort of sitting on their couch playing awesome video games. They love that. So like, why wouldn't a lot of people just want to like live fully in a simulation all the time where all of their desires are taken care of and all this kind of stuff. And you can do things you could never do in the physical world. I mean, it's certainly something to think about as a possibility. And that will be solved when we understand the mind fully, maybe. Um, yeah, I think like if you have a full accounting of the mind, you can create the technology to simulate it and you have sufficient energy to create the computational power. Computational power is a matter of energy. Um, then, uh, yeah, those seem to be the, the building blocks for creating a simulation that would have that sort of level of realism. Um, I, I always thought about these scenarios, but now you, you put it into a picture and you say, oh, if we actually put, uh, know exactly how a brain works and we put it to a c computer, a cloud or whatever, then then it makes sense the situ uh, the simulation theory because in, in my brain it's like ah uh, okay simulation theory maybe uh, is a bit far but now that we are co we are inside the simulation <laughs> now I can start imagining is that so you put like a bridge to this theory <laughs> for yeah, me actually, to start okay. that. <laughs> you know there is one caveat to that which is that there's this idea in cognitive science which is called embodiment. And that's really the idea that a mind can't really exist absent a body. Um, and that's because like a lot of the cognition takes place in our bodies as opposed to in our brains. You know, um, a lot of say, say like, you know, if you try to program a, a, a robot to walk across the street, it's pretty difficult um, without having the kind of limbs tuned properly to operate in that environment. So some of that cognition, we talk about this in the book, uh, and, and you know, a lot of cognition actually takes place in the body. Um, and so it might be that just like a, a vat, like, like a brain in a vat might not be sufficient. You might actually need to be embodied in some way. Um, it might be hard to kind of simulate that. Maybe you need a, a, a body in the simulation as well. Yeah, right. So you might be able to like, program the body you know in the simulation not just the brain i'm not sure this is all getting into pretty philosophical stuff but yes um, but if we if we if we found a way to simulate the brain which is one of the hardest things ever like probably we're going to find a way to simulate the body experience as well so it can yeah. coexist together if one is as efficient condition for the other and then i guess the other thing of it is what i was talking about earlier with the community one mind is not enough to do anything. So it's, you're really going to have that. Also, the idea to simulate the interactions between minds in the way that generates this massive distribution of knowledge and so on. 
and it will be stupid for wow uh, it will be stupid for us not to create a hundred thousand different simulations and just see which one function better and like adapt the other uh, stuff that uh, like maybe in in a way to think about is like do evolution in a heartbeat like to play a hundred thousand scenarios and we take only the one that works and like we we just evolve rapidly so fast yeah i mean so this is the heart of like what a lot of people think with why we might be in a simulation because it does make sense that as a society becomes very advanced in terms of their understanding of um neural computing and they develop really sophisticated computational uh solutions that they will start doing more and more simulation. I mean, it's already happening on earth. Um, there's some huge amount of our energy um, capacity that is now going towards servers. I mean, some of it's doing kind of pointless stuff like mining crypto and so on. But um, <laughs> as you start having more <laughs> AI, you know, like if, if you are against crypto, no, 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 no. I'm just saying, <laughs> Uh, it's not sort of driving like like mining Bitcoin is not driving human understanding further, right? It's like it's like pulling this kind of fake resource out of the earth or whatever. I'm not okay. against that. Uh, I, I own some Bitcoin, you know. I, I, I don't have a, a strong like opposition to to crypto or whatever. Um, but what I, my point is that. Um, energy usage is going into computational power. Some of that is being used for things that are not like simulations and stuff. But a lot of it, like as AI, for instance, uh, you see, there's this gold rush going on right now to acquire the chips, you know, from NVIDIA and so on, and to develop these huge amounts of capacity that's necessary. Like, you know, what's happening at Tesla right now, um, they're in this I, I I know that you hugged Elon Musk. I, I was kind of jealous. I kind of want to give that guy a hug at some point. Um, but uh, there is, uh, you know, they have this incredible plan of building up uh, computational capacity there just so they can run bigger bigger neural network models um, so that they can solve the self-driving problem. And so um, you're going to start to see more and more of that. And that means that more and more of our energy capacity is going to be going towards uh, essentially simulation. Um, so that's, that's an exciting thing, I think, you know? So to, to be honest, this is what you're talking about. It came recently to my, uh, award. I read a book, uh, cheap wars and I understood like the current gold of, of the 2023 is the chips that, uh, the large, that the farms of computational power run on. Yeah. So right. this is, this is, uh, like, yes, it becomes now the most important thing is like fuel is like uh, for, for the artificial intelligence, large language models. So you need uh, not only fuel is the, is the building block uh, for. Yeah. For and it's, it's a very specific kind of architecture. That's the thing that's special about it. And that's why NVIDIA is kind of winning the game is because they have this very unique architecture, which is very good for this massively parallel kind of computation, which is what these neural network models are. They're massively parallel. Um, a lot of things happening at the same time. And so there's a, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but um, there's a special kind of um, architecture that's needed for, um, for running these kinds of uh, procedures. 
which is, you know, Tesla is actually trying to develop their own chips and their own um, architecture that would be, I guess, I don't know if it's a competitor, but it's another. But right now, I guess NVIDIA is the only game in town in terms of that kind of uh, computation for doing very efficient computation at scale of these large neural network models. That's why they're, you know, everybody's beating down the doors to try to buy their chips. So I'm curious to, to hear you personally in your life, how do you speed up learning? How do you learn your personal? Is by meditation? Is by uh, doing showers, cold showers? I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm actually um, very good at learning, which I think is probably my greatest skill. Um, and um, for instance, I'm very into music. I play music a lot. And so I'm often thinking about learning. And um, what is it? I think it's like a focused um, attention to getting out of your comfort zone. And because it's it's physically hard. You know, I said a lot of people like to sit on their couch and play video games. And it's like the better you get at a video game, actually the easier it becomes because everything becomes automatic. But a lot of learning is taking yourself out of that and then learning something new is is mentally and cognitively demanding people tend to like to not engage in that cognitive effort and so they don't do it but if you engage in that cognitive effort the process of learning is taking something that at once feels difficult and then making it automatic that's what a lot of learning is um and so um i think people end up you know i see a lot of musicians who play the same thing do the same thing for 50 years or whatever and they never get better they never get substantially better um, but if you have sort of a focused energy on, I'm going to like try something new, learn something new and kind of finding that and not get discouraged, you have to stick with it until it sort of clicks in. That seems to be the key. And then I guess the other thing that I'm often telling people, especially with music is, um, you can't look at a goal. Like if you look at the person who's the best guitar player on the planet or whatever, and you're like, I want to be like that, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, because it's just too daunting. Instead, if you say, compare yourself to yourself yesterday, did I get 1% better? And if you get 1% better every week at something, you're going to look back 10 years from now and you're going to, I mean, this is for something where it's a lifelong pursuit. You look back 10 years and you're like, holy shit, I've come a long way. So um, focusing on the right comparison, I think is really important. Um, you got to compare yourself to where you were previously and always just keep motivation. And then um, if you, th those two things are the important ingredients, I think for the kind of learning I, I, I like to do, you know, I have here in my door, uh, when I go in and out, the only person you compare yourself yourself yesterday. And I find, uh, oh, really? uh, I, I find this to be kind of so, um, refreshing like to my mental state in a way because it's so frustrating and there's so many people to compare yourself totally but totally. Uh, because I, i'm a youtuber i have uh, i can see always a person doing better than me and when i thought i thought that okay the biggest youtuber in the world doesn't have 
uh, problems like that. But then I met him, I became friends with him and I understood, yeah, maybe he doesn't have problems like uh, that particular area, the YouTube area. Yeah. But when it comes to business and money, he feels the same thing, frustrated that he's stupid in comparison to the other people. So, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a game that you are frustrated and you'd always lose but if you the game that uh, with yourself it's uh, comparing with yourself but it's difficult a bit to remember always to compare with you yourself. know I, I i often tell my 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 brother and i have this conversation a lot and life has a lot of ups and downs you know it's like this there's a lot of volatility in life um but if you just focus on the trajectory you know life is long and if you have an upward trajectory to your life you're going to look back. So like, you just have to make sure you're moving in the right direction. That's all. And then not stress too much when you have downs, highs and lows, you know, because there is volatility in life. But if you're just moving in the right direction slowly over time, making the right kind of choices, um, then, you know, you're going to get to an amazing place eventually in your life. I mean, a lot of people will, not everyone will. I mean, you know, you have to figure out what it is that you're good at and, um, you have to be a good person and make good choices and all this kind of stuff. But I do think a lot of stress comes from uh, the wrong comparisons. And then also, like, you know, we have this idea in psychology called the hedonic treadmill, which I don't know if you've heard that term before, but hedonic treadmill basically means that you adapt to everything. Hedonics just means how you feel about your life or whatever. Um, you adapt to everything. So it's like, you know, you have this amazing life and all of a sudden it's not as good as your name. You know, your, your car's not as fancy as your neighbor or whatever. But, you know, a year ago you would have like been so happy with where you are, but now it just doesn't feel good because the, you say have adjusted to this new level of consumption. You always want more and more and more. Or you're now, because you have this higher level of consumption, you're surrounded by other people who have nicer stuff than you or whatever it is. And so that leads to so much unhappiness. And um, I don't really know the solution to that because human beings are inherently- I know. Yeah, go ahead. I Say know. It. Let's hear it. <laughs> so uh, I do this purposely. So maybe uh, once every two months, once every month, I go maybe homeless for, for five days for a YouTube video, but I come back to the low and yeah. I remember yeah. that yeah. Uh, or I I did a video no 30 days with no food and yeah. so you bring that down yourself to the bottom again you yeah. adjust and you find That's a great happiness yeah. so so being able to artificially makes or maybe when you exercise very hard and you increase the exercise and it's come back so uh, something like that I think is the closest I got to answer your question. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Yeah. Like then you feel thankful again, but you know, no matter what you do, your mind is always going to come back to sometimes being unhappy, you know, or stressed or anxious or whatever. I I've, I've, I've kind of come around to that. Um, and you just have to accept it. And I think there are practices about just being grateful and trying to make better comparisons and just to think more and, and value what you have. And then, you know, there's other things as well. But, uh, I mean, I have an amazing life. I live in the most beautiful place in the world in Colorado. I'm a tenured professor. I have basically the, my dream job that I've, you know, like, you know, if you ask me, like, what's the perfect job for you 
earlier in life. I've got that. I spend a lot of my time traveling around to amazing places and doing cool stuff and playing music. And I've got two amazing kids and everything. And yet I'll wake up in the morning some days and just be like, man, you know, I'm just not feeling emotionally good. And it's completely stupid, you know, for whatever reason it is. I'm anxious about something. I'm missing something. There's something I want in my life that's not there at the current moment. Um, so, you, you know, like I think it's important for other people, like you said, you met with, who was it, Mr. Beast or somebody, some bigger YouTuber than you, and you learn that, yeah, their life's not all perfect, you know, just because they got to that certain level. And I think having awareness of that, that everybody struggles. Not not more perfect. Maybe it's less because they went and adjusted to what you, they, their circumstances yeah. is. Yeah. And now they just have so many more problems than you do. So maybe they are less. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. No, I mean, yeah, there's no, truth to it. Like, <laughs> the vision we get of other people's lives. I mean, you're a YouTuber, so, and a social media person and all this. You know, you, you know that the, the vision that you see of other people's life online is not reality. Um, because it's just the best moments that are curated. And so that makes other people feel really bad. You know, so I think that is one of the most noxious aspects of, of online life is that we get this vision of other people's lives that where we don't see the hard things and everything. And it gives you this false impression that everybody's living this perfect, beautiful life. Um, I think that that's a very corrosive aspect of social media. Um, so I think like, you know, having people be aware of that is important. You know, it's like you, you might see the glitz and the glamour, but um, everybody struggles. Every human being on the planet struggles. You know, uh, since we're in the since we're in the topic, I'm curious to understand like how your work on becoming uh, influence your personal life. Are you do you think you have an an edge to figuring life in the mind and maybe? Is you are is more easily manipulating other people, not in a bad way or a negative way. You make them collaborate with you. Or like, do you have you think your work gives you an edge to your life? I mean, so like one thing is, it's definitely made me better in relationships. I think, and in in some ways, better in relationships, and definitely I'm better in terms of. Um, being open-minded to other perspectives. That's something that human beings are really bad at. We want to argue about stuff. We think we're right a lot of the times, you know. Um, I, I think I've gotten much better at being a little more humble intellectually when it comes to complex issues and being able to acknowledge that I don't have all the details, being able to acknowledge that, okay, this issue is complicated and there's no black and white view. I mean, it's such, it's rare to come across an issue where there's a black and white, where like X is right, why is wrong. Half of the people are just dead wrong. I mean, sometimes you see it, um, but it's more rare than anything. And so I, I think I have gotten better about that, about being more humble intellectually, um, being more open-minded, being better about listening and not have that sort of um, toning down that side of me, that voice in my head that says, oh, that's stupid, whatever that, this other person's saying that's dumb or whatever, like not listening to that voice as much and, and then just sort of listening more curiously. Um, and trying to uh, be more open-minded in that way. Um, I um, I don't like to think about what I do as being a a conduit to manipulating people. 
Um, I like to think of it as a conduit of finding like mutual value maximizing solutions. So like, like I, I, you know, I love to teach my students about this idea. For instance, I just used the word hedonic. There's this idea in behavioral economics called hedonic editing. Uh, this is a little bit of a random tangent, but he, my, my students always love this idea because it's very simple. But basically, it's a way of, of saying, like, how can you combine decisions together in a way that feels better? Um, and I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent here to explain it to you. So, for instance, um, please. Yeah, we, we have uh, um, uh, this idea called diminishing marginal utility. Okay. And what that means is that, like, something might feel good. And then if you, like, double that thing, it feels good, but not as good. Okay. And um, so, for instance, if I give you $100, that feels really good. If I give you $200, that feels really good too, but it's not quite double $100. It diminishes. Okay. So, you have this kind of curve of, of uh, called diminishing marginal sensitivity. The same thing is true in the domain of losses. So, like $100 feels really bad. $200 feels really bad, but not double $100. There's also this thing called loss aversion, which you might have heard of, which is that like losing $100 feels worse than getting $100 feels good. We're like very sensitive to losses. So um, the idea of hedonic editing is that can we combine things in a way that doesn't feel as bad, but doesn't actually change anything, but just changes how we feel about it. That's hedonic editing. Um, and a great example of this would be the all-inclusive resort, okay? So if $100 feels like a loss to you, you go to that all, that resort and it's like, okay, I'm going to buy drinks at the pool bar, $100. Oh, I got to take my wallet out. That sucks. And then I go to dinner. It's $100 again. Oh, that sucks. So you're like re-experiencing that initial part of the loss curve that's very painful. Um but uh, if instead I paid the resort $1,000 at the beginning of the trip, I might only consume $800 worth of stuff. But when I pay that 1000 it doesn't feel that bad because I'm sort of on the shallower part of that loss curve. Are you seeing the logic of this? Yes. So you are going to not feel 10 times bad during the week. You are going to feel one time bad, uh, maybe a bit more, yeah. but slightly more bad in the beginning yeah. of the week that you went to the resort. I mean, this is why people like all-inclusive resorts, not because it's necessarily a good deal. But to me, that's not fooling people. That's like this mutually beneficial arrangement between the consumer and the business. The business gets a little bit more money and they get more satisfied customers. And they're not really tricking them because the customers are just like, I get to go off to wherever and just not worry about money the whole time. And it's like a great feeling. It's awesome. So like, that's what I think of, which is if I understand the psychology of that kind of thing, you might be able to find mutually beneficial arrangements between the stakeholders where the psychology really helps both parties. And it's not like a trick. I don't like tricks, you know? The marketing gets a bad rap when it's about snake oil, you know, when it's about tricking people into behaving in a certain way because I know how you tick. I don't like that kind of stuff. I think that the way businesses operate, especially in this day and age, 
better, business is not about tricking someone in a one-off transaction, but it's about customer lifetime value. It's about building a relationship with a customer over the long term. And if you trick a customer, you're not really providing value. You might trick them once, but they're not going to come back to you, you know? So finding these kind of long-term solutions where understanding the psychology of the consumer can help the business um, to really cater to that customer in a way that benefits both parties, that's the way I think about kind of the way I like to use psychology. It's not to trick people. It's to like, yeah, like if I can understand psychology so that when I get into a dispute with my partner or whatever, I know better how to make them feel better it might be understanding their psychology in a way that is like, in a way, a little bit of kind of a trick, but it benefits both of us because I care about that person. I don't want to trick them. What I really want to do is to kind of try to find a solution that's going to work for both of us in our in our interaction. Anyway, that's the ideal, idealistic version. I don't always succeed in to be this kind of like, you know, you know, this, this, you know, I don't always succeed in my relationships in that way, but that's what I aspire to. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you mentioned that you, uh, your work gave you a bit more on an edge on relationships. Can you, maybe with your wife or something, can you elaborate yeah. what some tips and tricks that you found? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm divorced. You, so I'm not sure people should listen to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I do think that. Um, shutting off this thing of one person has to be right and one person has to be wrong, and 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 a dispute or a, dis, a, a disagreement is about trying to like adjudicate who's right and who's wrong, and coming to some agreement about that. Like usually, that's not what it's about. So I do think that I have gotten better at understanding that for sure. You know. So how do you get in the conversation, let's say, with your sister or with the, with the person that you have an argument? Like, you, you agree, okay, first of all, let's, let's come from a place of understanding and not conflict. Like, how, how yeah, do you I think it's a place of understanding. It's like um, both people have good intentions. That's a starting point. And really, like, this person really sees the world through a different lens than you do. They understand the situation completely differently because um, their model for understanding the world is different from yours. What they actually experience might be different from what you experience, all that kind of stuff. So like, I think finding a, finding a way to transmit that information so that you can really see it through the other person's eyes and they can see it through your eyes, finding some way of some dialogue, some structure for a dialogue of being able to do that. Um, that's really hard and it can be very painful and, and, and it can be boring. And, and it, it be, requires whatever. two people. to Yeah. Both people have to participate. Absolutely. Um, but diffusing the tension of we're going to try to argue about who's right and who's wrong. I mean, usually it's not the right way to go, you know, um, that is one thing that I've learned. And then just trying to like, uh, we're we're naturally defensive and we try to protect ourselves in interactions. You know, we're naturally defensive. And so it's like they're trying to somehow stifle that defensiveness and that need to like prove that you're right. That's really hard that, you know, all the Buddhists will tell you it's like, like, you know, just sort of letting go of that is so hard, but that's, it's like critical, you know? Um, but if you love another person and you care about them and you care about the relationship, trying to understand what makes them tick, why it is that they feel the way that they do and all that, 
you know, not everybody is reasonable, but maybe you don't want to have such a relationship, such a deep relationship with someone who's unreasonable until they learn and evolve as a person to be reasonable. Um, but maybe you do love them and you just have to say, okay, look, here's what I'm going to say to you. Like, here's the way I see it. Take that for what it's worth. Let's change the topic for now. But I want you to just like try to think about that a little bit. And let's not try to adjudicate this completely right now. Let's like pause and maybe go away from each other for a little while and allow us to absorb this and diffuse and like take the tension down, not be so emotional. You know, um, when there's a lot of emotion involved in a dispute, often that doesn't help, you know, um, those emotions uh, can think, be really hard. Uh, at that moment that you are describing this thing, because you are defensive and you want you are afraid maybe they will uh, offend you or you are afraid that they will win the argument. You are, will look stupid. When you said that, I'm like, I was like, oh, yes, that feeling. <laughs> that, yeah. and, and it's kind um, of, it, 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 it's kind of a horrible feeling in a way for the conversation. If you just accept and like remove your ego right then and there, that okay, it's okay. If I get insulted, I will still be a human. If I if they make fun of me, I will still be a human. Like you shut up and like you let the other person like uh, no. Yes, uh, so that's a great advice. For, for I mean, it's easier person. said than done. Easier <laughs> said than done, absolutely. But if you can achieve that, it's it is better for sure. You know, most arguments are kind of misunderstandings, I believe. You know, so. Um, a lot of it is trying to like get the two parties or multiple parties to kind of see that everybody has good intentions. Like they don't want to fight. They don't want to be in a disagreement. They don't want to be, you know? Um, yeah. And, and that often things are complicated. That's like the theme of all my research in my book and everything. Like often things are complicated, you know, they're not so black and white. They're not so simple. There is nuance there. So yeah, that's kind of my, do you have people or students coming and asking your advice about stuff like in about their lives or what to do because like you 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 seem like uh, you're a psychologist or something like that is like especially me i was drawn to you you are like a persona that drones to maybe ask for advice or be, uh, so yes. do you have a lot of uh, this stuff uh uh, people asking you or your friends and family or your students asking you for advice? You know, sometimes I guess my students, I have a mentorship relationship with them. So I often, and, and going through a PhD is, is a hard time. You know, a lot of PhD students struggle with their emotions. They struggle with depression, anxiety, all these kinds of things. So I've had a lot of mentoring relationships in my career where, where I am trying to provide some advice to students on how to listen, sort of like thrive in that environment. Um, that's often very hard because it's just a hard period of life. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty and all that. In terms of like people asking for my advice interpersonally, that does happen to some extent. Um, uh, and sometimes I give it unsolicited, I guess. I've tried to like start doing that more for some reason, you know, to give people advice sometimes in an unsolicited way, but that can be risky. You know, that's scary to do because not everybody reacts to it well. Um, so, you know, I, I mostly stick to situations where people ask me for advice. Um, but uh, no, I don't try to play like life coach with people uh, unless they ask for help very often, you know. Um, 
Because like, I kind of feel it's part of this thing of being more humble. Like I'm often trying to figure out my own life, you know, and I think I should ask more for advice more. I've started to do that a little bit, you know, like I think that's part of being humble as well as to actually ask for advice. Like throughout my life, I've always kind of thought that I've got things figured out better than most people when it comes to the things I'm dealing with because I've thought about them more deeply and I'm like a pretty smart person. But often it is valuable to kind of have a fresh perspective. And often like when you get that advice that, yeah, again, that voice says, ah, that person doesn't really know what they're talking about. But then if you kind of like try to inhibit that and, you know, wait and slow down and then just think about it over and over again, sometimes that advice is useful because it comes from a person who's outside of the perspective. They might see what you're doing or what you're experiencing in a, in a different way, you know? Um, I, I will say the caveat to this is um, music. I'm always trying to solicit advice musically, which is hard because um, a lot of people are defensive about their music. So what that means is that um, a lot of musicians don't give feedback or advice very often because it's often taken the wrong way because people are defensive. Um, but the only way to get better at music is really to understand where your weaknesses are and where your blind spots are. So I'm always trying to ask people for advice musically. Um, not necessarily like, oh, this person has all the answers, but they see what I'm doing from a perspective that I can never see. I mean, I can watch a video of myself. I can listen to a recording, but they're a, kind of an objective observer of the music. So getting outside advice on what you're doing musically is like super valuable, but it's really hard to come by. So I, I try to solicit you that. Spoke so many times about music. Can you explain me like what music you do and what you play? Yeah. Uh, bluegrass music. I'm, I'm like a total bluegrass music fanatic. Um, I sing, I play guitar as my main instrument. I play banjo um, poorly and I play fiddle like very poorly. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's a huge part of my life. Yeah. So I think a lot about music a lot, you know. Um, we're sitting here right now. I never have my guitar more than uh, like six inches yeah. away from my computer because, you know, whenever I have a little bit of free time, I always grab my guitar and start playing. So, yeah. And what does that mean to your life? Is it like a, a way for you to think deeply, to, uh, for you to express yourself? How does that play a role in your life? I guess it's like, um, one, it's this thing I talked about before about learning. It's a lifelong pursuit where you can always get better. And so it's incredibly gratifying to me to get more and more musical over time. Music is like this infinite thing. However good you get and however much you learn, there's an infinity of things to learn more. And there's so many places to go. So it's like this lifelong pursuit where I feel like I'm constantly getting better um, and it's opening doors and enriching my life. Number two is the social connections that it creates because playing music with other people is the most in amazing experience. One of the most amazing experiences in my life. It's one of the most fun things to do. I play music with my friends. I play music with my daughter. Um, it's, it's amazing from that perspective. And I guess the third thing is it's, it's created these incredible experiences in my life. So um, I made friends with bluegrass players in Europe. In April, I went to Europe. I played music with my European friends. Um, they're coming here in August, and then I'm going to another music festival in France, in the Alps. Um, I did a sabbatical in Spain where I played music while I was out there. So 
I made some of my best friends in the world play music and they're scattered around the world. And then when I go off to these places, I get to be in these new environments, you know, like I'm going to the Alps and I get to play music with my friends and meet local people like real Europeans, not really be a tourist, but be like no people, the, the real people. And that's like the most amazing experience. That's the most amazing way to see the world that I could think of. And so music has enriched my life um, so much and I, and I get so much out of it. And that's why I think I love it so much. If I give you $1 trillion, how do you spend it to have maximum impact? A trillion? Yes. Holy cow. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, what would I do you with can a prob- trillion you dollars? You can probably buy a hug from Elon Musk as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so what do I see as like really exciting in the future? Like, I do think that the development of artificial intelligence um, uh, is incredible, like for the sci-fi possibilities. I do have always been very interested in space and space science. So you see why I like Elon Musk, you know? So I am very much excited about humanity's next um, chapter in terms of understanding our place in the universe. Um, Those are the two things that are really exciting to me. Um, I also like do believe that in terms of humanity's welfare and well-being, there's like two things. One is just um, the well-being of human beings. Um, and our, I, I do think AI is a big part of this because AI is going to unlock economic activity in a way that is going to create a society of abundance. That's going to happen anyway unless we don't blow ourselves up or something. Um, if you look at economic, the size of the world economy um, going back to like 2000 BC, it's just this perfect exponential. And the way that an exponential curve works is that things change in a percentage way, not a absolute way. And what that means is, is the implications of that are tremendous. What that means is that an economy that is, say, the size it is now, in 10 years will be X percent bigger. And then 10 years after that will be another percentage bigger. And the implications of that are crazy. So for instance, if you add up all of the largest economies, our largest businesses on earth 10 years ago, maybe they're worth a trillion. Now they're worth 10 trillion. 10 years from now, it would be worth 100 trillion. And then another 10 years, it's a quadrillion. So the implications of that in terms of, um, say, per capita GDP or whatever your um, world GDP or whatever, um, the implications of that are, are incredible. What that means is that every human being on earth should have more than enough if we're able to allocate that economic activity um, in a somewhat reasonable way. That means an era of abundance where people don't go hungry, everybody lives like kind of a comfortable life and all that kind of stuff. That's like well-being. Um, I, I'm going to ramble a little bit. Well-being is not enough because like we are, we do judge ourselves by our neighbors. 
So if everybody's now has every all the good stuff, like people lock, are not just lock gonna, pe- lock people in the houses without any interaction of that. Exactly right. <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to make people happy either. But um, so so people might not necessarily be happy uh, because they're going to see their neighbors who have more than them, and that's going to make them happy. But we will be in this era of abundance where we should have universal basic income. Everybody's going to have their needs met, and so on and so forth. You shouldn't have poverty uh, in on Earth in the next. I don't know what the number is, but 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever. But um, you can have, you still need the innovative edge of human beings, um, which is to create new things, to try new things, to not just sit on their couches and play video games where everybody's just fat and happy. Um, that's the other ingredient of like exciting uh, things um, in humanity. And, um, I think that where's that innovation? Well, it is kind of like science fiction. And that's another thing about Elon Musk. He's, he's taken with science fiction in the same way that I am, which is we have to be, have something to be excited about. And I think like the next chapter of life, thinking about, wow, like what could, what could uh, our deeper understanding of the mind open up in terms of new opportunities? And then understanding our place in the universe, space travel, all that kind of stuff. That that to me is very exciting as well. So I I don't know, like having a trillion dollars, that seems like almost too much money. I wouldn't know what to do that. I would probably squander it in some way. But um uh, but that I, would be I, I, I want you to be more specific. I give one trillion to space exploration. I create a company yeah. that travels to space. I I give one trillion to the well-being of, or I create a universal basic. Like, give me more detail. Okay, advice. how about how about like, like I don't know that this would be it, but I think like if you could build a space elevator, that would be pretty amazing because that would change. I mean, this is, SpaceX is trying to do this with landing the rockets, but there's an there's like an even um, greater order of magnitude change in the uh, accessibility of space by virtue of having a space elevator. So if you could pull out the space elevator, um, that to me like would open things up in an amazing way. Okay, so that's my answer. Let's build a space elevator. So you go get inside and you go to Mars with an elevator like you get in the... You wouldn't go to, you wouldn't go to um, Mars. It would just go to orbit. Orbit and then but there's another elevator that goes what's that? to Mars. Yeah, I mean, like then, the, 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 the way they talk about the elevator is really like there's some counterweight in space. Um, it would be probably an asteroid or something. And you just have this big like thing that's attached and you basically just ride it up. You just ride up to space. And uh, that would reduce the cost of accessing orbit. Like once you're in orbit, it's fine because... And like, even if you're on Mars or the moon or something, the gravity well is not nearly what it is on Earth. So accessibility to the rest of the solar system and beyond becomes much easier once you develop some space-based kind of, uh, we're way outside of my my uh, area of expertise right now. So we're, I'm, I'm talking just based on my sort of like, you know, lay interest in this kind of stuff. No, but, but, but you're very excited and you have a lot of passion for it. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am excited about that. I so do love space and aliens and all that kind of stuff. I've always been really into that. Yeah. So uh, what do you want to leave behind in this world? 
my legacy. Um, I don't really think about that very much. Like I focus on being a good person and like making my, sure my kids have a great life and then trying to um, make my own experience on this earth um, as filled with new experiences as possible. That's what I'm focused on right now. I don't really think about my legacy. Um, and I think that by following that, I will have a good legacy um, because people will remember me as a good person. And I've already done a lot. I, I guess like I don't think about it. I feel like it's it's a little self-centered to think about my legacy. Like I've already had an amazing life and I feel like I'm, you know, I've written a book and um, I've had all these cool experiences and I've gotten, you know, I've had like amazing kids, all this kind of stuff. Like I don't think I really need anything beyond that. Um, talk to me in 20 years and maybe I'll be thinking about that more. Like what do I leave behind? But really like I just have always followed my nose in my life and tried to be a good person and try to work on problems that I find exciting and interesting and um, I try to give to other people, you know, give experiences to other people like my children or my friends um, and be like a generous person. Um, and I feel like for me, that's enough. And uh, if I started thinking about my legacy, I feel like that would stress me out. I'm already stressed en enough about trying to, to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. You know, I don't need the, the additional stress of feeling like I have to worry about what it is that I leave behind. Uh, so basically, you're saying that uh, uh, by not thinking about your legacy as well, we'll create a better legacy as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I just, it's not something I really think about. And that might just be a matter of like, I haven't gotten to that stage of life yet where I start thinking about that, you know? And maybe it's also just because I'm this radical optimist and I just, like, part of me doesn't believe that I'm going to ever die, you know? Like, of course I am, but. Part of me doesn't ever think about that because I'm an optimist. I like to think about the present. I like to think about the excitement of my life. I don't like to dwell on leaving the earth and what is it is that I would leave behind, you know? Uh, on, uh, on the last question is, do you... Uh, so there is a lot of young people probably that are listening to this podcast. So do what... Uh, this is a stolen question from the Lex Friedman podcast, but I like that podcast. Yes. What, what advice do you have for young people like me and like other people that I'm 23 that will have a life that we will be proud of? A life that you're proud of. Yeah. I guess like I've already said it, which is focus on the, um, the trajectory, you know, just make sure you're making good decisions. Um, and heading in the right direction in terms of where you want to go in life in small steps. Don't think about the destination and trying to get there all right away. But I do think you need to think about the future and where it is that you want to end up and to try to chart a course of like, what is the small steps I'm going to take that I'm going to head in the direction of that goal? Um, and then I think like another thing is like be a good person um, because uh, life is not transactional in the way that people think it is. Um, a lot of the time, like it's not a zero sum game. Like actually li listen to the Lex Friedman with Mr. Beast, who is that? Do you know this? Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like he said some things that I thought were really interesting. Like he, he seems to be a very generous with his time. 
um, in ways that it's not immediately apparent how that's going to benefit him. And I actually think like um, that is a great advice. Like when I give, like I I don't always take this advice. Like so I get random emails from people that I don't know quite often who are saying like, you know, I'm a student in, you know, whatever country and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I don't answer those a lot of the time just because I don't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, but just giving of yourself of like to help another person, if you make a habit of that over your life, it redounds to your benefit, actually. It's like over the long term, it's a totally rational thing to do. Because if you just give out good energy and positive energy into the world, people are going to like you. And being liked, people don't realize how important that is to a career. Like being liked is really important. And people like other people who um, who are positive and generous and all that kind of stuff. So I would just try to say like, just try to be like a good person, try to be positive, And then like, do not stress about trying to be somewhere all at once. Realize that life is long and that if you're on the right trajectory, over time, you're going to get to where you want to go. Um, definitely. Hope okay. that's good, guys. It's... It's it's the best way to close this. So I love you. Thank you for your time, for being yeah. here. And guys, subscribe so, to this podcast. And I put the book down in the description. Go buy it and watch more of his TED Talks and all this stuff to learn more about his field. Thank you guys for watching. Bye-bye.